Let's jump right into this. Uh, some really, as I said, good things here. Uh, let's start in verse 20, <coughs> excuse me, verse 24. Paul starts right off with some, I don't know, pretty deep water. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. Woohoo! Go, Paul. Amen? Uh, you just, you can have the, you can monopolize that, Paul. I'm, uh, you know, but he, he's going to show us something here. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And then he says something really interesting. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, a couple of interesting things here. First of all, this whole idea that Paul is rejoicing in his sufferings. Um, if you, let me see if I can draw this out so that we'll have some idea of what Paul is saying. If you had a, uh, a child or a grandchild, and that child or grandchild had uh, leukemia, and it was very serious, and the doctors had given up hope, and the doctor came to you and says, but wait, we can take some of your bone marrow, and we can strip the stem cells out. You're a close enough genetic match. I don't know if any of this is feasible. I'm making all this up. And it will completely cure your child or your grandchild. Now, but it's going to hurt like the Dickens. Would there be any of you that would not rejoice in that suffering? You see what I mean? You don't look forward to the suffering. You, you didn't plan it. You don't go, but the fact that it would accomplish something that was so dear to you and so, so heartfelt in you, we would, re oh yes, absolutely. Do you need an arm? You can have an arm. If this is my child, my grandchild, uh, you know, I'll suffer and I'll rejoice in doing it because they're going to be made well. That's a little bit what this is like when Paul says it. And he even puts it in that context when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. The, the suffering isn't only for them. It's, he, he's not just saying that I have suffered for you. He is saying that in the way that I've suffered, it produces a benefit for you. We're going to see that, that that's actually the context that Paul says this. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And then, it's really interesting, he says, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. If you take that right on the face value, you'd say, look, there was nothing short about what Jesus did. That's a little bit what this sounds like if you don't dig a little deeper and if you don't find the context that Paul is saying it in. Because he's not saying that there was something lacking uh, in what Jesus did. But he is saying that there is a way in which he's making up for something about Jesus that is undone in his readers. It, it presents, the, this, this, this section presents the continuing idea that there will be suffering for those who follow Christ. And Paul's intention is that through his suffering, he'll make that clearer to his readers than perhaps Christ's suffering has. Now, how does this make sense? Here it is. Um, and this is, there's a direct correlation to you and I. Um, I, I didn't see Jesus physically, neither of, did any of you. Um, what we know of Jesus, what we experienced of Jesus, we experienced through faith. We read his word, the Holy Spirit enlightens the word to us, but none of us walked with him and talked with him. None of us were in the garden when he suffered, praying and sweat, great drops of blood. None of us saw him hanging on the cross. None of us saw him cry out to his father. 
forgive them for they know not what they do. None of us watched how he suffered, but we know that it happened because of what we read and the faith that we have in it. But if you watched me suffer and today in some way and you saw the purpose of it, you'd be much more connected to my suffering than you were to Jesus' suffering. Somebody tell me why. You, you saw it. You were there. I'm in the room with you. You, you with me? That's a little bit like the context that Paul is saying this. He's not saying that there was any shortage in what Christ did. He's saying that by his suffering, he is making up for them what they can't comprehend about Christ's suffering because they didn't see him. They didn't know him. Paul says, when you watch me suffer, you you can understand what it is to suffer for the cause of Christ, and it makes up the difference in your understanding of what a Christian is supposed to be like because you didn't have personal interaction with Jesus, but you have had personal interaction with me, and you have watched me suffer, and you know what's going on, and so it sort of makes up. It fills in what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in your mind for the sake of his body, that is the church. Um, What's interesting about this is if you know more about the, and we said this in week one, does anybody remember where Paul is writing this epistle from? He's in prison. So when he writes to them about, I'm suffering for Christ, it's not just, you know, uh, you know my shoulder is sore. <laughs> he's, he is in prison, and the only reason he's in prison is because of his dedication to the call of Christ upon his life. He's broken no laws. He's not living sort of in the gray area. He is suffering in all kinds of ways. I touched on it this morning that we are comforted in order to comfort others if you you watch the senior adult service. But Paul endures over the course of his life immense suffering. So much so that in more, more than one occasion, he's convinced, you hear it in his writing, that his death is imminent. He is shipwrecked. He is stoned and left for dead. He is, uh, at one point in time, there's a group of people that have committed themselves to kill Paul. I mean, he's a marked man. And all of that because of his dedication to Jesus. We would like to say, wait a minute, if you really dedicate yourself to Jesus, life gets easier. Well, I'm sorry, but you can't prove that by Paul's life. Amen? So when Paul says, look, I rejoice in my sufferings because what it's doing is you watch this, it's showing you what dedication to the kingdom of God is all about. And there's a benefit in it. And as I said, he writes this in several of his epistles while in prison. Verse 25, he says, let me read 24 and 25 together because they go together. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. A couple of interesting ideas in verse 25 here. Uh, It's the word stewardship that I want to start off. Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me. When we think of stewardship, we often think of tithing, giving. um, But the biblical word in the time that this was written meant something very different. A steward was something different than what we think of it. Um, the, the, uh, the Greek word in, that is used here for stewardship is okinomos. 
I'm sure that you will use that this week somewhere. Did you know that the word for stewardship is okinomos? You know, you'll be somewhere and that'll come up. Somebody go, oh, wow, that's impressive. Yeah. How do you know that? Oh, I just do. I'm, I'm just, yeah, all right. But what's interesting about that is that we think of being a good steward as it relates to tending over something, and that is true, but there's another, there's a piece that because of our context, we don't understand that a steward was an office. It was a position. It was a position most often in a household. You were the chief steward, uh, and the chief steward in a house that could afford to have one uh, would have been the household manager. If you know the story of Joseph in Egypt, when he becomes uh, the, the manager over Potiphar's household, he would have been the chief steward. But the thing about a steward is this. The steward is never the owner. In, the, in biblical times, the steward was often a slave who had been exalted, much like the story of Joseph, and he had been exalted to a position where he was a trusted, loved member of the family, and they had different kinds of slavery than what we think of with, with slavery in the, in the United States um, in the past. But the steward would not, he would absolutely not be the owner. He would have been given the responsibilities that he held by the owner, by the master of the home. And it's in that context that this word is used when Paul says, and I became a minister of the gospel of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Paul is saying, look, I'm not the, I'm not the boss. This thing that I do, regardless of the authority that I might speak in and regardless of the power that might exude even in miraculous things from my life or the degree to which the Holy Spirit might use me to pen what we know to be the Word of God, he says, look, I am only doing this because a stewardship was laid upon me by the Lord. And the stewardship that I was called to serve well in from God was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He doesn't say that, but that's what he is, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, the, the bringing the gospel to the Gentiles to us seems like, yeah, well, we're all Gentiles. We're glad you did. But in the day that that happens, that's really the reason that Paul suffers like he does. He was often pursued not by other Gentiles. It's often the Jewish people that are trying to kill him, his own people, because of the way he's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and reporting that, and he's also stirring up a lot of people with, with, with what he's preaching. But the, the, the thought is this. He is bearing a great burden, not only in the message that he's delivering, but in the suffering that he's doing, and all of that laid on him by the Lord. It sort of brings into light this, this, this life. And that's why Paul said that this thing that I'm doing is for your sake um, so that you can see what it is to be a steward of what the Lord has given you. Now, he, he really makes a, a, a powerful point here uh, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. What, what, there is a question that comes to my mind that Paul's about to answer, but so what's the primary responsibility of, for Paul, the stewardship that Paul 
has assumed that the Lord has laid on him. He says, to make the word of God fully known. There's a lot of things that pastors are asked to be and do in today's world. And I think we, we, uh, we, you know, we shoulder those responsibilities, some better than others. But there is just one primary responsibility when it comes to being the stewardship or being a steward for the Father. And Paul says it is his chief commission, and I think it's every preacher's chief commission, and that is to make the Word of God fully known, period. Um, Much of the difficulty that befell Paul was because he made the Word of God fully known. He preached, and people started getting saved, and they started not buying the, 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 the little temple idols that they had been buying. And then the people that were making the temple idols and, and benefiting from them got mad because they couldn't sell their idols anymore. And so they stirred up a riot and tried to kill Paul. And I mean, that's, that's how he eventually got arrested and sent, sent to Rome, all right? But our job, this thing that we do here, it's got a lot of really good things that we do, but we have one primary commission, make the word of God fully known so that it leads to salvation. As a follower of Christ, I tend to believe that all of us have one, one primary commission, Make God's word fully known. Do it in our lives, do it in our speech, do it in the way we do our marriage, our work, everything. Make God's word fully known. And, uh, and keep, in, keep in mind that we're stewards, not owners. This kingdom that we've, that we've come to bear and this privilege of being sons and daughters of God, we don't own that. We are, we're just stewards. And uh, pastors are we're not the shepherd, we're under shepherds. We work under the shepherd. And I think it would do us good to remember that, that we're just tending his sheep. They'll still be his sheep long after I'm gone. And, um, and I think that's some of what Paul was saying. Verse 26, he says, uh, to make known, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery, really interesting term here, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. Now, a couple of verses later, he's going to tell us what the mystery is. Uh, So there is no mystery to you. (laughs) I'll tell you right now, the mystery that Paul is referring to is Christ. You're going to see it in a couple of verses. But uh, in fact, verse 27, the very next verse is going to allude to that. Chapter 2, verse 2 is going to say the same thing. Chapter 4, verse 3 is going to say the same thing. Um, I just want you to think for a minute about why why Christ would be called a mystery. Well, he's still a mystery today. Um, watch this. Let me show you ways that Christ is a mystery. Love your neighbor more than you love yourself. That's a mystery to most people. Amen? Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but think of yourself soberly. Um, your righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. That's a mystery to people. Um, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who despitefully use you. <laughs> Everybody say mystery. Mystery, all right? It's unknown. It's a, it's a foreign concept. It is foreign to our flesh. It's foreign to our minds. It's foreign, it's foreign to our culture. It's it's foreign to... Now, watch this. Let me, let me get more theological and deeper in this. You, you have people ask a question to you. Well, 
How can you tell me that that so-and-so would would go to hell if they didn't know Jesus? That was a really good man. That's a great man. They were kind, and they were were benevolent, and they they gave, and they were generous, and they, they never hurt anybody. That was a really good man. It's a mystery. All have sinned and come short of what? The glory of God. All you got to do is rise to the level of the glory of God, and you don't need Jesus. You can go straight to heaven. That just means you have to be perfect in every way. So, listen, I've had a good day today. I'm I'm, I'm just going to brag on myself for a second. I was careful with my thoughts. I was. This is not made up. Any any, uh, thought would come in. Any thought. I'm on, I'm on, I'm on the, for the whole world to see, but I'd start any, anything. I'd, I'd, okay, watch this. There was a, I'll just be completely transparent. There was a, a YouTube, for some reason, it had this picture of, okay, it's an actress. And it was in the, it's in the listing. It was an ad. And it was like, uh, fo- unknown photos that few have seen. And, and she's not, it's not a, it's not a terrible picture. But it's a, it's a, it, it, it's trying to get guys to click on that link. I promise you, and and it had been there like it's. I'm I'm looking. I think I was looking at fishing videos. You know, you know, yeah. I'm not fishing for that. All right, she was fishing too. Let me tell you, somebody else was fishing. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember who she is. A singer. Um, uh, I got Jessica Alba, but it's not. But anyway, so. It's been there. And finally, there were three little dots over it. And I, I was like, I am tired of being, so I clicked, and I, I had never clicked on the link, but I, I thought, I wonder, and I clicked on the internet and it said, quit seeing this ad. And I was like, ha, 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 ha. I clicked that, and then the ad was gone. All right? Why? Because I'm, I'm trying to be careful. All right? So all day today, all day this day, I don't think I've let a sinful thought ferment in my mind at all take it captive, throw it out. Lord, I I, I was in the Word multiple times today. I prayed multiple times today, just sort of feeling the Lord's presence all the daily. So I had a great day today, but I'm still not, I still can't make the glory of God. You see what I mean? It's a mystery why you could, you could do all of that, but without Jesus, I'm lost. Why? Because my righteousness at its very best is filthy rags. There will always be a, this is the level of God's righteousness. I mean, I would, we would be way down here. But listen, this difference is the justification of Christ. This is what he does. That's a mystery to people. But it's the truth of God's word. You cannot, you cannot earn your way to heaven. So Paul says that the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, there's a thing that you and I take for granted all the time. How many of you really believe Jesus is the Son of God? Can I see your hands? Raise them up. You really believe that? Randy, it took you a while to raise your hand there, man. I hope you... All right. Dan's waving back there. All right. Did you ever think, why? Why you? Why you? You, 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 just, you just believed it? Somebody told you? And you accepted it? And... You had the opportunity, you were raised by parents, you were brought something, it was planted in you, and you believed, and faith erupted, and you were saved. Man, what a blessing. 
the, the knowledge of who Christ is. Paul says that's a mystery to many people, and it was hidden for ages, and it was hidden for ages, you know, when the, when the prophets would speak of it, but only a few when Jesus arrived on a scene even recognized him. It was hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. I think it really is a revelation. There comes a moment when the truth of who Christ is and your need for him comes so strongly upon you that in a moment of repentance you cry out to the Lord and he saves you. That's a wondrous revelation, but not everybody has experienced that yet. It's a mystery to them still. That mystery is Jesus. Verse 27, he says, talking about those saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. There it is, that justification, the hope of glory. Now, we know that verse, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But listen to this. We, we blow through this without seeing the real wonder of it, if we, if we don't slow down a little bit. And that is how great among the Gentiles, that part. Gentile, in this context, means anything non-Jewish. That's true. But in the day that this was written, and to the people that it was written to, uh, these are Gentiles that he's writing to. It's miraculous. It's unheard of. It's unprecedented that a Jewish Messiah would, would reveal the... And, and do you understand the, the strength of the current of belief from the Jewish people that they and they alone were God's chosen people. And the, 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 do you understand the strength of that current? And then Paul steps out of that and goes to Cornelius' house and they start speaking in tongues before he can ever give the message. And not only are they saved, but they get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so, so much upheaval at that that, that the brethren, Peter and others, call Paul back to Jerusalem, and they want to know, why did you go to this Gentile's house? Even among the New Testament believers that have been saved, that have also been filled with the Spirit, they still have not totally gotten their head around the fact that Gentiles can be a part of this. And Paul is saying, look, the mystery of God that many of the Jewish people missed has now been freely given to you Gentiles, us Gentiles, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. We blow past it, but man, that you know who Jesus is, one day the, the scales are going to come off of our eyes and we're going to stand before him and the riches of the glory of the mystery that we know is going to be fully known to us and you're not going to be just, yeah, it's kind of cool, yeah. You're going to be jumping and leaping and clapping and celebrating, and we'll know exactly what it is that this knowledge, this mystery is worth in that day. And then he says, and if you can go right back to that illustration that I used about God's glory and you not being able to approximate it, he said, what, what is our hope? What is the hope that we will one day be in that glory? Christ in us. Christ is in you. Christ justifies. He makes up the rest. And if we, let me make sure that you understand that term I've said it several times but in, in, in other teachings, but listen, the word justification, we, we use it like it's, um, well, he's just trying to justify what he did. That's the way we use the word. You know, um, 
Michael went out and bought a motorcycle. And now he's just trying to justify to Rebecca why he needed it. All right? I know you would never have experienced anything like that. But that's the way we use the word. But that's not the way it's used. That's not what it means in its context. When the scripture talks about being justified or justification in, in the world that Paul is writing in the first century, this was an accounting term. We use it that way, but not as often as we use it the other way. When we say, well, you got to justify the books. What does that mean? That means all of the, all of the receipts have to match the expenditures. The, the numbers have to be the same. And the income has to, you know, all of the deposit slips has to match this. And it's all got to line up. And then if there is an error, we have to find it or we have to justify that in some way so that it's the same. And in a biblical sense, justification is just that. You cannot pay the overdraft on your spiritual account. And so Jesus pays it for you. He takes the literal term in a spiritual sense is that he takes out of his account and he puts it in your account to make you such that you are now equal to the glory of God so that you can be in his presence. That's the, that's the glory of the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is in Christ Jesus, the hope of glory. He says this in verse, uh, remember, well, let, let me say this. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul also writing, listen to this. And this is, this is the way we need to live. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Once again, writing to Gentiles. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants. And they were. They weren't particulars in the covenants. They didn't know anything about the covenants. Having no hope and without God in the world. That's how he described their state before Jesus. Colossians chapter 3 verse 4 says, When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's what's going to happen. Uh, and that's this mystery that he's describing. That's the benefit of having known who Jesus is and having accepted him. Let me tell you something that happens. And I, I recognize that you guys, I mean, you go to work, you get up, you get kids up, you, you have routines that you go through. And, uh, but but when, we, when we study one of these books, um, I'm in them a lot. I mean, I am in these, we did first John. I can ask me a verse in first John. I can tell you what it means. I mean, it, I mean, I just dig into these things and there is this having done that now for, well, I've been here almost 10 years. We've been doing verse by verse. I did it 10 years before that in Paola. So for 20 years on Wednesday nights, I've been teaching verse by verse through the scriptures. Uh, most, almost all of it, the, the New Testament. A few Old Testament prophetic books, but for the most part, New Testament. There's this thing, that there's this picture that begins to develop in your mind when you've, when you've gone through it. And one of the things that is just everywhere in the Scriptures, it's everywhere, is this idea of being thankful for what we know. It is said in many different ways. It's almost like the, the biblical writers, it's almost like the Holy Spirit knew that, that our whole being would be prone to forget. And it's like he says it over and over and over. Don't, don't forget the riches of the glory in Christ Jesus, that Jesus in you, the hope of glory. Don't, don't forget 
who you are. Don't forget what he's done. Let that stir you. Let that motivate you. Let that be the thing that causes you to work wor- walk worthy of the, of the thing that Christ has done for you. It's over and over and over. So much so that when I hear somebody say, listen, it doesn't, have, it doesn't matter how you live. It's just you just need to pray and ask Jesus and then grace and you can do what you want. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get my, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You know, it's not going to be a good day. It's not going to be a good day. All right. I've got a bad thought running through my head. It's that I want to drown Randy in a swimming pool somewhere if he really believes that or if he's teaching that because there is this thing that we owe. There is this thing that has been done for us and it ought to captivate us. Amen? Come on. Amen? All right. I get all cranked up. You can't do that mealy mouth amen stuff. You got to bring it. All right? Prior to Christ, the Gentiles were not a part of the covenant community. Verse 28, speaking of Jesus, who is in us the hope of glory, he says this, him we proclaim. Well, there it is. It's impossible, Paul says, it's, it's just the natural conclusion that having known him and understood this mystery and understanding the privilege that's been brought, brought to us, well, he's what we proclaim. Now, let me go back just a little bit and remind you of the context of this, of this whole book. The purpose of Colossians is a, is a letter that Paul wrote because false teachers had arisen in Colossae and they were teaching, we believe, from the, from the, we don't have a record of what they were teaching except in Paul's response to it. But it seems pretty clear that they're teaching that Jesus wasn't God. They, they are Gnostics, we believe, and one of the beliefs of Gnosticism, which was a, a, a heretical belief system that rose up during his time in the first century, one of the things was they, they, they denied the deity of Jesus. And, it, it, it's, and they were trying to get people to follow. You, you won't see it tonight, but you'll see it two weeks from now, where some of the teachings were just man-made church religious, empty, hollow, deceptive practices. In fact, those, those are some of the words that Paul uses, hollow, deceptive traditions of man based upon the, the, the basic tr- teachings of the world. All right, that's the way the verse goes. And so this whole book is, Paul is sort of building the case. You're not to that where he addresses it directly, but what he's doing is he's, he's building up to that, telling you about who Jesus is and about what we've gotten. And don't forget, don't forget what Jesus has done for you. Um, him, verse 28, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There's a word that I've used a couple of times with you. I'll use it a couple of times more in the weeks to come. Uh, It's the word Christocentric. This book is entirely Christocentric, centered on Christ. Um, It is a central theme of Paul's writing that Jesus is the central thing. Um, much of our idea about the theme of all of the Bible being about Jesus comes from Paul's writings. It's all about the messianic nature of who Christ was and what you do with the Son of God who came and gave himself for you. Paul says, him we proclaim. Remember, false teaching is a written. It says that Jesus isn't what the Bible says he is. And Paul is making this case. Look, we proclaim him warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In Christ. 
Paul's goal is to present those for whom he has stewardship over and to develop them as mature believers. Let me ask you a straight-up question. How mature are you? I'm not talking about how old you are. How mature are you in your belief in the things of Jesus? Uh, I, I'm challenged on a regular basis. Um, you know, this whole, this whole pandemic thing has challenged my level of maturity. How mature are you? I've grown in this deal. Uh, we don't ever stop. Paul wants to present all those under his care as mature believers in Christ. Verse 29, he says, For this I toil. To do what? Develop mature believers. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, somebody tell me something interesting in that verse. Anything jump off the page at you uh, with verse 29? If you see it, just say it out loud. Struggle's good, but that wasn't the one that jumped off the page to me. Whose energy? His energy. I struggle with his energy. I like that a lot, don't you? For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. How do you, how do you go through shipwreck and not quit? You do it in his energy. How do, you, how do you go through stoning and get left for dead and show up for apostle work the next day? You have to do it in his energy. How do you take, you know, multiple missionary journeys across the, I mean, the known world of that day, at least their known world, and, and endure the hardship and the in the persecution, and not just throw up your hands and go, that is enough, all right? There's something greater than just your own strength working in you. How do you, how do you live through a pandemic? <laughs> you do it in his energy. How do you raise kids in an ungodly age? Well, you got to do it in his energy. How do, you, how do you live and speak and do the things that we're required to do? There's got to be some connection with a power source beyond you and I. Paul says, I do toil, I struggle, but I don't do it in my own energy. I do it in his energy. And he says that he powerfully works within me. What do you think the, let me ask you a question, and we, we don't know. We could probably go back and prove it. I didn't think about it until just now. But how do you think Paul stayed connected to the Father sufficiently that his energy worked and his power worked in him? How did he, what do you think he did? I think he spent some time in prayer, don't you? I think he was absolutely uh, a student of the Holy Spirit. I bet there weren't many days that went by that he didn't set aside some time to be with the Father. I think one of the enemy's greatest ploys in today's world is our busyness. Man, I don't have time to pray. You don't have time not to. <laughs> Amen? Yeah, yeah, if you're locked up in prison for the cause of Christ, you can make time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, maybe that's what, maybe that's what we need. We just need the Lord to lock a few of us up. We become great Christians right after that, all right? Well, I had a guy one time, true story, and you saying that, Carol, made me think about it. He was uh, a, an individual who I absolutely believe had a call of God on his life. He was a mountain of a man. He was a great big guy, uh, great heart. Uh, but he could not make up his mind to fully serve the Lord. 
he would just go, he would, he would come in, he'd come to the altar, just weep, he'd commit his life to the Lord, he'd get up, he'd just, I'm going to live for the Lord, I know he's got a plan for my life, and a month later he'd be in the world. And then he'd show up on a Sunday and he'd come down to the altar and he'd cry and he'd weep and he'd just, you know, and then a month later he'd be back in the world again. And this went on for about a year like that. And finally I set him down, called him by his name, and I said, look, I said, if God's really got his hand on your life, I need you to be aware of something. I said, in my experience, God will call to the spiritual and call to the spiritual and call to the spiritual and then he'll mandate with the physical. You choose. And he wouldn't give up. And then eventually, God mandated with the physical. And today he's serving the Lord, but it was a train wreck that caused it to happen. Hey, God's a loving father. He, he, he's not going to let you slip into eternity without interrupting your plan, all right? And um, yeah, he, it... it, it Listen, God can do some stuff. Amen? But Paul talks about that he is working in the Lord's power, not his own. He says, uh, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And then he says this in verse 1. And these go together, even though the chapter division is there, the thoughts don't stop. That's why, the, that's why we put them together. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul is talking about his struggle. And once again, I've talked about it enough that, that it's fresh in your mind. Just because you're a completely committed follower of Jesus does not preclude difficulty. In fact, it may even guarantee more of it. Because we fight against a real foe who wants to stop the work of God. And you start pushing forward the kingdom of God, you can be sure you draw his attention. That's why you don't need to do it in your own strength. You need to do it in the strength of the Lord and in his power. Paul says, look, it is a great struggle I have for you and for all those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. He is, um, Paul often writes letters, epistles, in the place of being able to go and be with them in, in person. And that's what this is. Um, verse 2, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. See, there's the, we know what the, what the mystery is. But now listen, Paul's design in this is to bring encouragement, but not, not just encouragement so that you feel better. This is, a, this is a particular thing that he wants to encourage them in. He wants to encourage them to be something. That your hearts may be encouraged in what? Being knit, you, you may be knit together in love in order to do what? To reach, and now we're back to that same thought again, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. Well, that's, a, that's a really interesting phrase. To reach the riches, remember we talked about how understanding the mystery is a rich it's a rich, it's, it's filled with riches. It is, it is the, you know, it's the eternal pivot upon which our lives hinge, knowing who Jesus is. That's a, that's a treasure that we have that we sometimes don't think about like a treasure. It's just something that I know. I grew up in church or somebody told me it's no big deal. It is a huge deal if you understand who Jesus is and you've accepted that. Paul says, 
I want you to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. This is a little bit like the scripture when Paul says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able. All right? Now, watch this. What's, what, what does full assurance sound like to you? Full assurance of understanding. That's the phrase. Full assurance of understanding. There's a richness in that. There's a treasure in that, Paul says. The riches of full assurance of understanding. Lots of, lots of other opinions in our world today. Lots of other things that compete for allegiance. Pick, a, pick an issue. Let me pick one that's pretty easy. Is it okay to abort a baby? Everybody convinced that it's not? I'm not. I went to a deal. We, we want to provide help for women who have. But the world says that it is. All right? The world says that it's okay. It's just a woman's choice. It's not even a life. It's just a grouping of cells. It's no big deal. Is it okay to... Um, I'm just, I'm trying not to, I'm trying to think about everybody in the room and hope that I don't land on any sin that any of you have done. All right, is it okay? Is it okay to steal money? Huh. All right, is it, 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 watch this. Is it okay to commit adultery? But the world really doesn't, that's, you see what I mean? It's, it, it, it can cause you some, some legal problems with your spouse but, but the world doesn't have any commentary about it anymore. It's, it's your choice, you know. If you're not with the one you love, love the one you're with, all right? Um, that's the world's philosophies, all right? Um, should, uh, should fathers raise their children? Stay in the home. Stay married to the mother of the children and, and care for and raise the kids. Yes or no? Yes, right? The world says, well, listen, it didn't work out. I mean, she's really difficult to live with. I mean, <laughs> I mean you know what I mean? Um, should people work and, and earn a living? That's my, that's my beloved right there. She knows where I am. She knows what I'm doing right now. She calls anyway. She, just, she calls when she gets to her car. She worked today, so she's letting me know. She forgot that we're streaming it for the whole world. All right? Um, anybody have any idea what I said a minute ago? <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, the world has all sorts of philosophical opinions, yes? Why do you believe otherwise? Yeah, but, but Pat, lots of people have read the Bible and they don't believe it. Yeah, you see, you, the mystery of the gospel isn't a mystery to you. You, you have accepted his lordship. You have, you have submitted your life to him. And what Paul is saying is that, listen, there are, that's a treasure. And being fully assured and understanding this mystery, being fully assured of it, he says it, it is, it's a great, it's, it's a, it, it is great riches. That, and, and we don't, we rarely think about it that way. Pat, you are rich, girl. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about it in that metaphorical way. 
there is a richness, there is a treasure to being fully aware of who Jesus is and being fully convinced that he's God's son and that that, that state of being convinced causes you to submit all of your life to him. That's full assurance of understanding. That's what he's talking about. And Paul says, that's a treasure. And that's a mystery. And if you're in, you ought to be thankful. Not like it's a select. God wants everyone to come, but, but you have to choose to submit your life to him. Whoa, good catch. And then he says to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now, do you understand that Jesus' last name wasn't Christ? Do you understand that when that term is used, that's a title? Does everybody understand that? I want to make sure that when he says, which is Christ, that's a reference to the messianic nature of Jesus. That's a, that's a statement of his lordship. That's a statement of his position in God as a member of the Godhead. And he says, listen, you have understood, you have full assurance of that understanding. You're not sort of flirting around the edges of this. You've gotten in. This mystery is clear to you, and you have submitted your life based upon the knowledge and the understanding that you have of who Christ is. It's, it's just wondrous, and it's good. Uh, the blessing of knowing who and what Christ is and participating in his kingdom and its life. Verse 3, watch this. Which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and understanding? And I knew that word treasure was going to come in here, but I forgot it. I was using it a lot, and I forgot that it came in. That, that this, is, this is like sunken treasure full of gold doubloons off the coast, Dick, that we paddled out in a rowboat and went down with a snorkel and a mask, and we came up with billions of dollars of gold. Woo-hoo! All right? That's like what Paul is describing here. You found a treasure. You may not feel it every day here, but you will one day. You will one day. There'll be a day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. And in that day, the wealth of the treasure that you found when you fully comprehended and trusted in Jesus as Christ. Oh, man. He says, in that, all the treasures of wisdom and understanding. And in him, in whom, talking about Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and the knowledge and wisdom and knowledge. All right. Now, when you put the eternal nature of Christ's kingdom into perspective, the treasures become something. I know we can't feel that right now. We don't see it. I'm going home in a minute. I'm going to have some dinner, sit down in my chair, and that's going to be a treasure to me, all right? But that's nothing. Paul, now watch this. I'm going to, I don't know if any of you have read this author. Any of you ever read any Clive Cussler? Dick, you read any Clive Cussler, Carol? He writes his early books. I don't like because they, but, but one of the things Clive Cussler does in every one of his books, he starts in the first chapter with a real historical, he's a, he's a fiction writer. And he's got a central, it's, he's got a central figure that's an adventurer. And, but he always begins with a real historical event. The first chapter is always his description 
like, like he's narrating it when it's happening, like the, the ironclads during the Civil War is in one of his books, or, the, or the, you know, a Spanish galleon being caught in a storm. And he writes, that's, it's a real event. And somewhere before the story's over, chapter 2 he begins in modern times, but somewhere that's going to become central to the whole story. This thing that I've done tonight has been a little bit like that because before we get to the last couple of verses, this treasure, this mystery, this, the riches, do you remember the first phrase of this section that we read? Now I rejoice in my sufferings. It's only when you begin to understand the wealth of the knowledge and who Christ is, that that's even on the, on the buffet of possibilities. If Christ is only a religious thing, if it's only about coming to church, being a part of Abundant Life or Calvary Baptist or Main Street Methodist, if that's it, if it's only about the Assemblies of God to you, which are all, all those are good things, things that are dear to me, but if that's it, you're never going to be to the place where you can rejoice in suffering for Christ because it's too small. That's too small, man. That's, and if it's centered on the person of the pastor or the, or the people or, your, or even your family, as good as that is, if that's the reason that you're into this, none of those are going to secure you when the world bombards you with all the other ideas about what might be true. But when you begin to really understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, bring it on, devil. All right? Why? Because... It is a treasure that captivates your heart and everything begins to be shaped by that understanding and knowledge of the mystery of who Christ is. And it's only in that context that these verses make sense. Because I don't want to suffer, but when you begin to understand the cause for which you're suffering, like Paul did, he says, I rejoice in it. My weakness is where his strength is found. His strength is made perfect in weakness, in my weakness. Verse 4, I say this in order, and now, right now is where we start getting to the real issue of why this letter was written. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What's a plausible argument? Carol, help me define plausible. Possible, you know? Plausible. Um, Listen, you've never even seen God. How do you even know he's there? plausible argument. I have not seen him. Not in the way they're saying it. Right? A lot of terrible things have been done in the world in the name of Christianity. Plausible argument. Got it? Uh, How could a loving God allow a child to be sick and die? Plausible argument. You know, it's a man. You read that Old Testament. My goodness. They killed everybody. You know? They go into those towns and they kill, kill all the animals. What do the animals ever do to anybody? Kill all the kids. That's in there. In case you didn't know it, there are places where that's in there. There are places where it's not too, but... Plausible... Ar- yeah, yeah. Plausible argument. You with me? And if you don't have something deeper than just convincing words of men's wisdom floating around in you 
There's not something deeper than that that holds you to the person of Christ. It's going to be tough to hold on in the world we live in today. Paul says, I say these things in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And there were people in the time that this letter is written who were deluding people in the church in Colossae. Last one, verse 5. He says, For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul is saying, look, I want to find you strong. I want you to, I want you to be having these teachings that these false teachers are bringing upon you. I want them to be bouncing off of you. Why? Because you have your life in firm order, and there is a firmness to your faith in Jesus. Let me ask you another question tonight. How firm is your faith? How firm is your faith in Christ? Not the church, not me, not the organization. How firm is your faith in Christ? Uh, I think the world is moving into a phase. Uh, I don't know when Jesus is going to come again. Some have believed that he's, he's coming any day. Uh, I refuse to, I don't know. I say that because the Bible says I don't know. But I do believe that the world is moving into a phase where your faith is going to be tested. You're going to be presented with plausible arguments for why you ought to forsake this. And you're going to have to have something stronger and deeper than just a casual relationship with Jesus. You've got to see him for who he is. You've got to understand, you had to have full assurance of knowledge and the mystery of understanding and all those things that Paul writes about. And... Uh, if that was true in the first century, I think it might be true today in the world we live in. Amen? Father, let our faith be strong. Let it be firm. Let it be based upon your word, Lord. It's the only thing. Uh, other people's opinions, I won't do it. Uh, I love the relational aspect of the church. We need it. We want more of it. We want to encourage it. But that's not what holds people firm. That's not what keeps them in you. It's their understanding of who you are, Jesus. And when they understand truly who you are and they submit their lives fully to you, this world doesn't have anything to offer. Um, even when they fall, they'll get up, repent, and move back closer to you. It's who they are. So, Lord, let your word be hidden in our hearts. Let us be strong. Let us live in full assurance of who you are. And let our faith be firm in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.